Welcome to Have You Seen This, the podcast about obscure, overlooked, and misbegotten cinema. All discussions will be spoiler-heavy. You have been warned. Have you seen this? I'm Jennifer Albright. And I'm Tim Heiderich. Tonight, our guest is a returning customer. He plays the befuddled dad to several large sons in the beloved sitcom <laughs> Chapo Trap House. It's Will Miniker. How's it going, Will? Hello. Have you seen this? I'm, uh, I'm glad to be back. I'm <laughs> glad to be back with you, Jennifer, and uh, with Tim for the first time. Hello. Yeah, this is a new one. Yes, today is the beard cast. Yeah. So we got yeah. a magnificent pair here. <laughs> I'm still growing mine. Well, it's, you got a little uh, bit of a mustache. I mean, it's that. patchy, but like I'm feeling good. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like high school all over again. So tonight, as you recall, uh, last time Will was on, we discussed uh, Scorsese. We're going to be talking about another great director of the 70s, uh, my man, Wide Dick Willie Friedkin. And we will be discussing one of my favorite films, from the man himself, cruising. And I think there's a whole sub-community that's a real fan of cruising. <laughs> yeah, they like to wear similar uniforms or something. Oh, police. <laughs> it's like one of those uh, one of those movies like The Big Lebowski or Rocky Horror Picture where you really gotta dress up to fully enjoy it in the theater with all your with all your friends <laughs> and all your bros. This is a movie that you you should definitely see with your bros. Yeah. Yeah, so strap on your harness and uh, enjoy. Yeah, strap on and strap in. No, so strap into the harness. <laughs> if you were strapping on the harness, you'd be the completely wrong audience for uh, this film. Oh that's true, yes. Yeah, grease up your fist and dive yeah, on um, in. Get your get your can of Crisco. Because uh, we're just going to slide right into it. <laughs> you may not think all three of us could fit in this movie, but we're going to make it. <laughs> well, as long as none of us is a cop. Right. Are you a cop? <laughs> well, what? I have been accused of it in the past. I'm not, you know, I'm not saying. Uh, yeah. I'll, keep, I'll keep mom on that. Oh, that's true. But um, I should point I, out I we, all my have, cover. we all have queer bona fides because I am bisexual. Mm-hmm. Tim is a sapiosexual, and <laughs> Will lives in a Park Slope mansion with several men. <laughs> Will, can you give us a uh, little TV guide synopsis of Cruising? Okay, Cruising is, uh, was made in 1980, and this was like uh, the director William Friedkin's uh, sort of return to gritty New York crime after, you know, the, the French Connection. This was his... Return to New York, and it was a uh, based on a novel I think from the, the the 60s by Gerald Walker I think was the the author. But uh, this is a movie that was completely reviled upon its initial release. Almost wasn't released. Um, it became incredibly controversial even before it hit three theaters because I think. Um, a, a, a gay newspaper in New York, or like a, I think the Advocate, or I got a, got a copy of the script and read it and called for boycotts of the movie. It was a movie that was basically like it, the, the, the movie is about like, you know, a, a killer is killing gay men in New York City in the 80s. And it's about how Al Pacino has to go undercover into this like gay subculture of S&M, hellbent for leather, underground sex clubs. And it is, even by today's standards, 
a extremely explicit movie in its depiction of uh, gay sex and this particular gay like leather subculture. And it was, you know, lambasted as just being like disgusting and awful and incredibly homophobic when it came out. So much so that I think Al Pacino to this day will not even discuss the movie if asked. I don't think they just like, the studio just like locked it in a vault or something before many, many years later getting, I think, a, a re-release of some kind or like a, a second look. But it was a movie that was just too much for the time it came out. Yeah, which is unfortunate because I personally adore its frankness about a subculture of queerness. And I was wondering what you guys think about those allegations that were made against it. I think that people are reacting to it thinking that it's just more of the same, whereas I would posit that there's no purpose in making a movie that tells people what they already know. You need to kind of like have a, a twist on it or, or some other opinion on you know what's going on with sort of gay culture and the wider culture's reaction to it because you can't just have a movie that's echoing the same sentiments of saying like you know this freaky gay culture is really weird and I'm uncomfortable because of it there's no artistic merit in making a movie that's just going to echo what other people's sentiments are like you have to go beyond that and I think that that's what people were reacting to because they were thinking that it's just more of the same. I would say that watching it again, it, it's certainly, I would say, it's not not homophobic, but like <laughs> it, it's, as time has passed, it doesn't strictly live up to the, uh, the controversy of it. That being said, it is a movie that goes to incredibly explicit lengths to, I think, really rub its audience's nose in like the absolutely like most like seediest and like most extreme parts of pre-AIDS New York City gay subculture. And the, the way it's depicted is, as you said, like incredibly frank and explicit, but also I think Friedkin does it in a way that is, it's very dark and, and seedy and, and nasty in, in, in a lot of ways. But even though it may perhaps have been more accurate than any other mainstream movie has ever before or since even attempted to do. Yeah, it is really explicit, and I think that people kind of get hung up on the explicitness of it without realizing the, the broader cultural context. Like, one of the things that Jen had noticed is that, you know, the first scene starts with, you know, this gay guy getting killed, but the next scene after it isn't the cops reacting to it, it's the cops continuing to exploit transvestites. And it's, right. it's, yeah, it really shows that the cops aren't on their side, like, as of yet. Yeah, I want to actually, uh, that was my uh, my first reaction to the movie was, uh, like, uh, th that first scene with, uh, it's two cops in a patrol car, and it's very interesting who they're played by. One of them is played by Mike Starr, who I'm sure listener of the show will remember as the Irish guy from Goodfellas who organizes one of their first uh, Air France heists and then eventually ends up getting whacked by Robert De Niro. He's sort of the big kind of like chunky Irish guy. He was in Dumb and Dumber. He's like a character actor that's very well known. Was, was he also the guy that Steven Seagal fights in On Deadly Ground? In On Deadly Ground. In <clears throat> On Deadly Ground. Okay. One of the yeah. that Steven Seagal like teaches a lesson about being mean to uh, Inuit peoples yeah. in On Deadly Ground. <laughs> uh, more important though is the other cop is played by the actor Joe Spinell, who is like the absolute king of like sleazy New York City 70s exploitation movies. Uh, he was in Maniac, he had an uncredited role in The Godfather. Google image search Joe Spinell, and like he just has the look of like sleazy New York. And he plays one of these cops, 
And and then his character comes back in the movie in a number of interesting ways. But like this first scene you get of him is that these two guys in a radio car, they're like, I guess in the meatpacking district, when they see two uh, transsexual or streetwalkers and then like begin to hassle them and be like, you're on my corner, you know what that means, like you gotta pay a tax basically. And they get them in the patrol car and it's like very strongly implied that they're gonna extort sex out of these two streetwalkers. Yeah. And then it's almost like the scene just ends, like nothing, it doesn't really go anywhere. It comes back later a little bit. But then it's just like you see the killer walk into one of these underground sex clubs, which is really kind of the, the centerpiece of the movie. Is It's a sort of kind of an excuse, like the, the, the police plot and the murder investigation. It's really all built around as an excuse to show several very lengthy scenes in these like underground gay sex clubs in 80s New York. One of the things that I like about the very first scene is that, and this is, this can be a jumping off point for a whole diversion about the structure of horror films is that the first scene does establish cruising as a horror film because you meet this really freewheeling charismatic guy mm -hmm. who then meets this enigmatic killer and then you know, is murdered and we never see this character again yeah so it follows i think the format of you know every generic horror film where it's like this is what this film is going to be about this is what happens and so yeah. you kind of set that, that initial scare, and then the plot gets going. Yeah, and oh, that, um, that first victim is incredibly charismatic as God, well. That guy has so much game. He does. Like, hey, where are you from? Mars. Oh, cool. I never made it with a Martian. Just like, he's <laughs> always on. Yeah, and he's also, uh, it should be pointed out, a physical double for Pacino. Yeah. Which plays in later in the movie. Sorry, just uh, one more note about that that first scene with the uh, the two cops who uh, extort those sex workers. Like the mm -hmm. first actual scene of like dialogue between them is uh, the Joe Spinell character. They're really, really. They're both like just gross. The look of these two cops is just like incredibly gross and yeah, sleazy. Yeah. Like it sets the tone for the rest of the movie. Mm -hmm. But the thing that the Joe Spinell character is talking about, he's like my wife. She took the kids to Florida to visit her sister, left a note, I'll get that bitch. And then his partner says, uh, of women, they're all scumbags, it's not worth it. And again, it's setting the tone for the movie that like women just don't exist in this film at all. Karen Allen plays mm -hmm. Al Pacino's girlfriend, but like I said, she sets the tone for the movie in that she mostly doesn't matter and isn't a character at all. Yes. This is setting up a world that is exclusively masculine mm -hmm. and masculine in like sort of the, the, like I said the seediest kind of nastiest way imaginable she's there to show that Pacino's character continues to not be gay yeah, yeah. <laughs> she's, she's there as, as a signifier of his heterosexuality who gradually falls away as the film progresses but yeah, yeah. it is and, very and much about says, there's something changing inside of me <laughs> <laughs> it is very much about masculine worlds of sexuality and violence. And again, the interesting thing that I took away from that first scene is from, from the start where it's all pickup artist kind of bravado, then there's a scene where he's tied up and the killer's got mm -hmm. the knife out and then you find that for all the, the bravado and all the masculinity, there's this vulnerable character mm -hmm. with no sort of like recourse for the violence that's about to befall him, whether it's from the cops that kind of turn <clears throat> the other way, whether you want to make this a metaphor for AIDS or for homophobia, it's just like this guy's, he's this masculine man who's also like suffering with no one to help him. Yeah, because the movie actually takes time to develop 
these homosexual characters. So yeah, it isn't like marginalized people. Because it's not. I I don't watching it like I don't feel necessarily like these people are just caricatured, you know, or stereotyped. You know, yes, they're a part of a of a reviled subculture, but they're also humanized, much as the roommate or the um, the guy who lives yeah. next door to Pacino and his yeah like, the next door neighbor, the uh, the playwright. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. Don Scardino, who's on a Mystery Science Theater episode, Squirm. Yeah, he's Mitch. Yes. <laughs> he's the antiquing Mitch from Squirm. Oh, and I should point out, um, one of the trans sex workers, the one who eventually goes to the cops to try to complain, is played by Gene Davis, brother of Brad Davis. Gene was in 10 to Midnight, which we discussed on the show. He played a serial killer. Oh, he's a crazy one. And can I just say he looks fucking great he's in gorgeous. this movie. Oh, yeah, he's, he's like He's like man. actually stunning and is like skin tight leggings and heels with like the red <laughs> lipstick you can see why they picked him right <laughs> the, the thing that this movie does over and over again in like playing up this the, the ambiguity about like who is the actual killer and we'll, mm-hmm. we'll get to that but like Friedkin does a lot with this there's a lot of gothic uh, doubling going on in this movie and the first time I saw it I like literally I couldn't tell the difference between killer and victim at a number of points in the movie. Yes. Where like because in this leather subculture there is like a uniform, and the way it's contrasted with uh, the police I think is also interesting. And this idea of like masculinity is just sort of about your identity is like the uniform you wear, and like you take off one and put on another. But like Friedkin is like at several points in the movie, like you see the killer and they're they're dressed in like a very certain way with the leather jacket and like the leather cap and like this kind of the uniform of this subculture. And then several scenes like after a murder will be committed, you'll see like sort of a wide shot of someone walking down the street wearing the same outfit, and then you'll realize it's just Pacino. Like and it's this kind of like at least I did. I had a hard time like distinguishing between killer, victim, and main character at certain points in this movie that I thought was very deliberate. Yeah, like there were literally, when, when he bellies up to the bar, like in several scenes, there's literally a guy next to him who look, fucking looks exactly like him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and who doesn't, you know, plan in the movie, he's just a, you know, a guy who looks like Pacino is at a leather bar. And uh, so like in the plot, like the setup is, right, like Paul Sorvino plays like the police detective, the police captain or whatever, who has to solve this serial murders that are going on of gay men. Before the Democratic convention comes to town. Yeah, before the, before the DNC, exactly. <laughs> and his, and his, his strategy to do this is to recruit like a young green officer played by Al Pacino who looks like the type of victim that this killer has been going after. So like he has the look of like height, build, dark hair, dark eyes. Pacino in the 80s, very handsome guy. The littlest cop. And just send him out in, into this world to be like an <laughs> enticing bait for this killer. And uh, you mentioned the scene where the, the trans sex worker comes back is, Servino is interviewing her and then like she gives information and then she says like, hold on, I need to talk to you alone. And Servino takes her into his office and she proceeds to tell him like, I need a favor. There are these two guys from the sixth precinct who are you know really hassling me. Uh, they, you know, they made me uh, give them a blowjob in their car, really saying like these guys are bad, like they're they're no good. These are bad cops. I need you to do something with this other than like just file a complaint with uh, IAD. They're bad dudes. <laughs> yeah, they're bad dudes. And Servino like completely dismisses this out of hand. He doesn't want to hear about it. And uh, what he says to her is, "How do you know they were cops?" And she goes, oh, "Well, yeah. because they were in a radio car, police uniforms." And he was like, "Well, what is their badge number?" And he goes, "She goes." I don't fucking know. Like, I didn't get a chance. And then Servino says, uh, I, they're faking. He goes, 
there, there are more guys out there pretending to be cops than there are real cops, which is like such a, a bullshit lie. Yeah. But then there's a scene later in this movie <laughs> at one of the sex clubs that takes place on precinct night where it's just a massive, <laughs> massive club just filled with men all dressed as police officers because that's their hobby. Yeah, filleting nightsticks. Yeah, filleting, yeah, billy clubs and stuff. And I was just like, oh, wow, he was right. <laughs> there were actually more people pretending to be cops than real cops. Yeah. That's and why there was such a big crime wave, you know? Like, is... you'd be running down the street going, officer, officer, I've just been mugged. And they'd be like, no, I'm just, I'm coming from a sex club right now. I'm not, this is like, some not really on duty. That's this dedication. That's dedication, yeah. though, to get, like, a cruiser to, as well. Yeah, exactly. You get a cop car to, like, force trans sex workers to yeah, suck you off. Yeah, yeah, that would be, that would be really going yeah. uh yeah really elaborate but no this is a hilarious bit of trivia that i found while i was doing some research and it, it kind of demonstrates how this movie has sort of grown in in stature as the years have gone by because maybe it's a little better understood um it's not so singular and there's more of an understanding of of queerness and queer culture but this is pretty funny uh this is from a book called queer images a history of gay and lesbian film in america and uh it alludes to some uh I think the consternation that the film created on its, on its release, and here's one example. Other aspects of the film also caused confusion. For example, Time des described Precinct Night at one of the leather clubs as a party for gay men who like to dress up as cops. Well, the New Yorker saw it as a party for actual cops who were gay. <laughs> <laughs> but can you imagine that reviewer like being so confused? Like, like, wait a minute, you mean there are all these gay cops going to these clubs? What? Wow, I never <laughs> believe it. In uniform? I mean, that can't be NYPD regulation, you know? Right. <laughs> you gotta, if you're off-duty, you shouldn't be in uniform, you know? That's... Well, it's like a police yeah, convention. very transgressive, yeah. You know, like, um, it's it's cops only, and it's like Comic-Con for cops. Yeah, you don't blow some steam after, like, the regular convention and go out partying with your buds? But it's funny because there was no ambiguity in my mind when I first watched this film as to what that is, because it's like, well, first of all, like, the leather subculture is not shocking to me. It's it's like that's just called the typical Tuesday night at a lot of my friends' houses, right? You know, so but, yeah. I mean, also we came to this movie what like a decade or or more after it came out. So exactly. Also, hindsight yeah. and context. Yeah. So it's like I was like, oh yeah, precinct night. Yeah. You know, it's like it's dress up. And thinking about it now, I think a lot of the controversy about the movie and uh, the pickets and the and the anger from the gay community in like you know 1980 New York. I think is probably due to the fact that like, you know, this is coming at a time when the gay rights movement had made a lot of strides mm -hmm. in sort of like making being gay or being open like a more acceptable mainstream thing for a certain kind of like middle class, well-to-do gay man. That was, it was very important to maintain like, you know, to be like, well, I can be in the boardroom or whatever. And this movie really was just like all about like putting a microscope on like, you know, an aspect of gay culture that perhaps these people did not want mm -hmm. to be advertised. Yeah, or, I can see and there's that. Even mm -hmm. a, there's even a part of the movie where, like, one of the murder victims is this, like, sort of very obviously wealthy boutique owner who, uh, you know, like, instead of going to the Hamptons, like, you know, goes downtown to, like, a pay-by-the-minute porno theater to, like, just get picked up, basically. And the first murder victim... Was uh, a college professor. Yeah, he's like a Boston professor. Yeah, yeah so it kind of tears the veil away from this outer respectability. It's rubbing the presumably straight audience member's face in it, but it's also rubbing like a lot of gay people's face in this movie, and it's and how 
repeated and explicit and how like how the camera lingers mm -hmm. so much on these scenes of these men and just everyone is dressed like Rob Halford and they're just like <laughs> dancing and grinding and doing poppers and fisting each other and blowing each other in like dank basements. You couldn't even have men kissing each other on screen at the time, but it's like you'll see like bearded guys just fucking Frenching like right on camera. It's oh, fucking yeah. great. Big mustaches and leather caps just yeah. full on making out. It's something which is still very contentious in the queer community today because you will still see people in the community saying, why do we have all these fucking freaks and weirdos at Pride? You know, I don't want to see that. Like, we don't need that. Well, yeah, it does kind of cast them in a bad light of what's an already marginalized group. I can understand the protesting because it's saying, like, we're trying to be respectable here and you're making us look like horrible human beings. I totally take that point from, like, a culture which is, like, marginalized. It's like, you know, we don't want to be painted as, like, these degenerates. But at the same time, I'm like, I like the idea of, like, queerness is, like, dangerous and flagrant, which is one reason why, like, I love this movie so much. Yeah, just fucking get that Crisco all over everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's got to go to that almost caricature extreme just yeah. to, to really, like Will says, kind of grind your face in it. And again, like, I take the gay community's point at the time because this was at a time when there were no or next to no depictions of gayness on the screen. The movie Making Love hadn't come out yet. It's That's a, that's a gay romance with, with Harry Hamlin, which was incredibly mild, but caused, like, a huge sensation because it was very frank about its romance. And Cruising also had the advantage of coming out, like, literally the year before... AIDS became a thing because in 1981 is when what was called at the time uh, GRID or gay related immune disorder because it was first it was first noticed in a particular group of gay men but then um, eventually it was called um, I think to decrease the stigma it was eventually called AIDS or it, mm -hmm. when they realized yeah. that it didn't just affect gay men. It wasn't men. about being gay. It just happened it wasn't to be about in this taking population. Poppers. Yeah, yeah, they did and, think uh, that it was and, poppers and, at first. <laughs> you know, and actually watching this movie in hindsight with that knowledge and the fact that it came out in 1980 and depicted this world of mm -hmm. 1980, like you said, just before AIDS happened, it really had, it takes on a more apocalyptic cast, this, this, this last moment of like just unbridled male sexuality of that era. As far as this depiction of like of these sex clubs and of the, the act of cruising for sex itself, I think it holds up as pretty accurate. This, the author Samuel Delaney wrote a, novel, a memoir called Times Square Red, Times Square Blue. Oh yeah, that was all about his experiences just cruising the the porn theaters of Times Square as a young man, and uh, a lot of it does ring true despite how sort of like nasty and exploitative. The, the tone of the movie is. I did like that clip where they're watching the, the film strip and like they're showing the film and just like, what is this, a Kenneth Anger film? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does kind of look like they're watching fireworks, which is very arty. <laughs> I also love, um, there are a few moments when the knife penetrates the flesh and you get a quick cut. Yeah. Um, yep. A penis yep. penetrating an asshole. <laughs> yep. That was like Friedkin going back to his exorcist days of giving you just that like that quick cut flash of like the face, that demon face, except in this point it's a cock going in an ass. Yeah. yeah. Pazuzu it, also fucks, by the way. Well, he's got that snake dick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Friedkin has, I've actually seen him brag a few times about how explicit he got 
in the filming, like he says that he actually shot scenes of golden showers and stuff like that, which I assume they made him take out. It was yeah, probably so a bridge too collection. far at the time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I do like that this kind of has in common with uh, Alien, which I guess would have come out the year before about that sort of anxiety of receptive. I, I, I forget where I read it, but yeah, just recently someone's about had talked about how alien is is a metaphor for for rape but you know against against men yeah and um you know not to get too like you know baby's first uh film crit class here but traditionally in horror like victims are more often female and you know you do you do get that like knife penetration thing and to see it like turned onto the male body yeah is very interesting yeah, there's a very, like, uh, Friday the 13th, sort of, like, there's a the scene, there's a murder scene that takes place in the uh, in Central Park, in the famous part of Central Park that really was a, you know, a huge cruising scene in the 80s, mm-hmm. and I was at the, uh, the, the Ramble yeah. in Central Park, and it was just like, wow, New York really has changed, uh, you know, because I don't, I don't remember when it was just, you know, if you go to, in Central Park, there's just, like, men just having sex in the bushes. <laughs> yeah. Like, dozens and dozens of men having sex in the bushes. But that was a thing. Fuck and, you, yeah, Giuliani! That, that scene is sort of, like, running, uh, getting lost in the woods is very, like, classic slasher movie kind of thing. Except instead of, like, the last girl or the, the heterosexual couple that, like, goes off to, you know, have it away or whatever and then gets punished for their sexual transgression. And this is very much... It's the, the male victim. And, yeah, it does have that, that horror movie vibe when um, the guy is wandering through the dark foliage and and hit the killer is whispering this creepy nursery rhyme cadence yeah. to him. And it fits with that, you know, 80s notion of, like, don't go into Central Park after dark. <laughs> right. Yeah. You may end up having sex with a man, that, and, you know, like, that's that's just what happens yeah, in Central no. Park. Yeah, Purely by accident, quote-unquote. Um, uh, another thought I had uh, watching this movie um, is that, like, okay, so when Pacino goes undercover, he, like, goes completely, like, you know, off the book. Sorvino's the only one who knows his cover or whatever, and he, you know, moves down to Christopher Street, and he moves into a department. And in that scene, I just couldn't help but thinking that this is, like, consciously referencing Serpico. Because it felt like the exact same scene in Serpico where he moves into the apartment in Greenwich Village. Huh. But this is like, you know, only seven years later, but it's like totally twisted and, and fucked up. And it's like the anti-Serpico. It's gay Serpico. <laughs> yeah, it's fu- and it's funny because, you know, obviously Serpico was also about dirty cops. But yeah. um, this movie also takes a very dim view of the police. It takes an even dimmer view of the police than Serpico does, which is really saying something. Yeah, Yeah, and more so... Serpico were just dirty. They weren't, like, actual, like, rapists and just different uh, mass murder of uh, gay men. Yeah, Yeah. that's true. And there is so much bleakness to cruising because um, when we discover at the end that Pacino's uh, next-door neighbor has been murdered, who's the cop who's taking down all the details about the murder. It's that yeah. dirty cop from the 6th Precinct who forced the sex, the trans sex worker to blow him. Another Hollywood homicide. <laughs> you also see that guy show up in one of the sex club underground scenes. He walks across the camera and like, oh, no, no, he, you see him twice. He walks across the camera and looks directly at the camera, like you and the, as the viewer are placed in the, the position of Pacino and just sort of like moves by the screen and then you see him again in the rambles, like in a cruising moment, where Al Pacino is just like sort of posted up on, you know, in a tunnel, advertising, you know, oh. his goods or trying to catch an eye. 
So you see him twice uh, in the movie before the end as not a cop, but like another member of this like underground gay community, yeah. basically. He's, Whoa, uh, yeah. that's a good catch because I did not notice that. And I've the, seen this movie a couple times. The only catch that I made is uh, Powers Booth is the guy selling <laughs> hankies. Oh. Yeah. oh, can we talk about that scene? Yes. Yeah. I, I love that. I love this scene because it's just like apropos of nothing. And it has Powers Booth, RIP, by the way. Yes. RIP yeah. to a great one. Powers yes. Booth. But it's a Powers Booth cameo. And it's just like the scene is like apropos of nothing. Pacino is just sort of like testing the waters and trying to figure out this subculture of like hanky codes. And he goes into a shop on Christopher Street and like Powers Booth is the proprietor. And he sort of just takes him to what the hanky code is. And he's like, a red bandana on a blowjob. And if you give, it's on your right. And if you you know want one, it's on your left. And green is if you're a hustler. And then a yellow is if you have golden showers. And it's like, but where, where you wear it is a. Uh, yeah, giving or uh, whether receiving. you give or receive, yeah. and I, and like Pacino's just like ah okay uh, uh thanks a lot bye. Uh, <laughs> it's just like don't worry uh you'll 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 find what's right for you. And then in the next scene, Pacino is wearing the yellow bandana for Golden Showers, which is the weirdest one. <laughs> Why does this who's like the most extreme of the hanky code, and then immediately commits a faux pas by you know yeah. displaying this code and then like not using it to, to its full yeah, extent that, that other guy gets like, very pissed off as opposed to yeah because he just wasted his time <laughs> yeah, like don't wear that yellow hanky if you're not going to piss on me yeah <laughs> degenerate have some decorum well I guess we should just be lucky he didn't take a brown hanky <laughs> yeah <laughs> I remember when I first learned about hanky code it was in uh it was in San Francisco. Oh, I learned it from this, and I know that Peaches also did a song about it. Oh, did she? Yeah, but it was on like her fourth or fifth album. <laughs> Getting back to you know that dirty cop reappearing in a lot of the gay scenes as not a dirty exploitative cop, but as an actual participant, that reminds me of earlier scenes when it's Pacino out making the scene, and it's a lot of his POV shots of him out on the street. And the thing that you're noticing that if you're a straight man you probably never notice but if you're a gay man or a woman you're more likely to notice is all the guys that are making eye contact with like more or less you the viewer because you're not seeing that sort of like intense stare of like hey you like let's make a connection you know most of the time if you're just a guy walking down the street you know you're kind of avoiding each other and not looking anyone in the eye but Pacino's kind of fresh meat in this situation, so there's a lot of that kind of uncomfortable eye contact. Being sized up and kind of like judged and leered at. Like, yeah. and, and the movie really does put you, the viewer, in that place, which is disconcerting from standard conventional movies. It's interesting, like all the, the, the hookups that, that take place, they're set up with great speed and often with this like not quite covert swaggering aggression from both parties which i find very very interesting yeah you see a lot of that in the background and i think in the um like the, in that film reel scene there's some of that as well getting back to paul Sorvino's character you know giving him the assignment he opens the conversation with the pacino saying have you ever received a blowjob from a man and i gotta tell you <laughs> that's how i'm gonna start every conversation with a new person you ever get your pole smoked by a man <laughs> Uh, no, no, okay, number one job interview tips for listeners out there. 
You know, they are probably going to ask you, have you ever gotten your dick sucked by a man? Yeah. How you answer is very important. There's a number of strategies. And when he shows up in later scenes, too, even when people leave and it's just him and another guy, I can, I'm imagining him turning to him and saying, by the way, one more question. <laughs> like Columbo. Like Columbo. Ah, uh, 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 one more thing. Uh, and also, uh, what I like about the uh, the undercover cop setup of this movie is uh, there's always the question throughout it is like, is the Pacino character was he always gay? And, uh, like, was he all? Did he always have sexual attraction to men and is very kind of like turned on by this world that he enters? I think it's pretty clear that he is. Mm -hmm. But I like I like to imagine if he was like closeted or like he didn't know how to deal with these feelings or felt it was wrong and was really trying to maintain a heterosexual relationship with Karen Allen, that he just lucks into like a situation where like the head of the NYPD from the mayor on down is like, listen buddy, you better go in that leather club and suck some dick, okay? The yeah. city is relying on you, all right? You have to be gay, your city needs <laughs> yeah, you. You have yeah. to be gay, we're giving you permission, okay? This is the one opportunity. We're trying to find a killer here. You're doing God's yeah. work. Okay? And you know, that must be so freeing. Yeah, just Hellman for Leather, BDSM, just go hog wild. And uh, the funny thing with the, the Karen Allen in one of like the only scenes with her is that like when he first comes back to visit her, like after his like first foray into this world, he has like a leather bracelet on and like he fucks her better than she ever has been before in their relationship. <laughs> really, you know, goes for it. She's like, oh, yeah, you're but, an animal. Like, she doesn't even say that, but it's like strongly implied. And then every other scene with her, he's like totally bored by her. Yeah. <laughs> also, who is that man's name you kept shouting out during sex? Yeah. <laughs> Poor Karen Allen. She's such a yeah. non-entity. You know, she, she, her character is a complete zero. There's no reason for her to be in this movie at all but to like hold out this totem or avatar of heterosexuality. That's yeah, it. I hate to say it, like chalk this movie up as another one that's a favorite of mine in which women are almost or entirely absent. Well, I mean, think of like some of your favorite movies, like Lawrence of Arabia. I don't recall a single woman in that. There aren't any women in LA Lawrence Confidential, of Arabia. there's like one? Yeah, like okay. women figure in it, but it's definitely about a masculine world of cops. Yeah. And then Master and Commander. There aren't any women on that fucking ship. Right, well, we know what Jen likes. <laughs> the only women in Master and Commander is in one scene yes. where they're, like, in the Pacific Islands and, like, some ladies in big canoes, like, give them, like, fruit and a monkey. That's it. There's Typical a, woman's role. There was a moment where Russell Crowe <laughs> looks longingly at her for a moment and then, like, shakes himself out of it. And it's back, nods, to, yeah. it's yeah. back to run sodomy in the lash. He <laughs> <laughs> thinks about it for a second and then goes straight back to thinking about the crown and thinking about king and country. By the way, Aubrey so and like Maturin, number one ship, OTP. But, but mm -hmm. funny though, funnily though, all of those movies, Master and Commander, LA Confidential, and Lawrence of Arabia are all very homoerotic. They're all about homosocial relationships and kind of a, 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 a very low frequency of uh, homosexuality in all of them. Have you given no thought to them? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I think we all know it turns my crank cinematically. Yeah, <laughs> pretty boys. There's also the um, the popper scene because also uh, oh god yeah. we have to oh, we have it. to talk about this whole oh, sequence so yeah <laughs> so good and the way he dances is just like so robotic and jerky it's, it's 
Oh, it's so good. It's cute though because he's having such a good time. I, I, it feels like he's both like he's both super repressed and trying to break out of his shell. I think that's what like the really frenetic dancing is. Like he isn't mm -hmm. yet comfortable in his in his own skin in this situation. Yeah, because the um, you know the amyl nitrate like kind of allows him to break free. And Tim, because you noticed it when we first watched the movie, and this is a favorite of yours. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about how that scene is set up in the cinematography? I have to give myself a first-year film student gold star for noticing it. <laughs> but it's the sort of thing that is obvious in hindsight. The, the very first shot of this scene is an American flag, and it is completely desaturated. It is a black-and-white picture of a flag. If that like isn't completely obvious to you, it's the fact that as the scene goes on, he, there's kind of a blue cast throughout like, the whole scene, but as he's inhaling you know, from this rag, the color suddenly becomes more vibrant. Yeah, it pops. It, it suddenly becomes more vibrant and more alive. You can see how through the use of color, he's saying Pacino is becoming more, more vibrant and more excited in mm -hmm. this culture because without it, it's just this flat gray. And like, if you don't notice that from this thing is red, white, and blue, yeah. that is completely desaturated. Like, you know, how, how else can Friedkin like put it right in your face? I don't know how they did it. I would be curious to hear the process. If anybody knows about uh, color timing, like, but yeah. the way that when he smells a handkerchief and then the color just goes pop, yeah, you know, when it's yeah, suddenly so can, saturated and bright, and there are flesh tones. Yeah, and then you, and then he's oh, he's dancing. Yeah, you really see it's like you know bringing a lot of color into his world. Yeah, which which is um, kind of uh, you know, ironic color wise in that like you talk about Pacino coming back to Karen Allen, he's got like the leather gauntlet, and he's got all the accoutrements <clears throat> and whatever. In, in taking in this role, it's like you know the abyss stares back. Yeah, this gaping goatsy abyss. <laughs> that he falls into. <laughs> and, and, and enter, enter the void, enter the goat sea. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny that Karen Allen like never mentions to him like, hey, why are you suddenly dressing like you're in the village people? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Was the gay subculture of the time like that underground that it wasn't this immediate signifier that your boyfriend's actually into some Tom Finland shit. I think it would have been obvious to anyone uh, yeah. of the era what's going on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's like digression uh, about poppers. Uh, when me and the uh, the Chapo gang were in Pittsburgh, we were offered poppers basically like the second we stepped off the plane. Because <laughs> I guess they're a fan of them Rockstar. and I've never done them. So we were doing them in this bar and I think we almost got kicked out or we didn't realize it. But uh, my friend Jacob now told Jacob Bacharach, who's been a guest on Chapo a couple times and lives in Pittsburgh, has now told me that he is banned for life from this bar that we went to because we were like huffing openly in this fucking bar. <laughs> Good times. Yeah. It was, it, see, this is like now it's the 21st century. It wasn't even a weird gay sex dungeon. It was just a regular bar. So they don't cut into people uh, huffing uh, yeah. poppers. Well, yeah, you can't go huffing in the Applebee's anymore. <laughs> it's a shame. Well, I did see, uh, I did actually see someone arguing that, you know, because uh, eating ass has become such a trope online, especially on Twitter, I did see someone actually arguing that the straights have stolen eating ass from the gays. That is true, and there is definitely an ass-eating scene in this movie. Oh, yeah. Now, I definitely, there are probably several, to be honest, but there's one very explicit. Yeah. On the, now, on that one, um, you know, I, uh, 
I'm not Fanny Hill or anything, but I have been around the block, and I maintain that everybody loves getting their ass ate. Why must, why must we reduce uh, homosexuality to the anal, I ask of you? Right. It's so much more complex. <laughs> like, you know, maybe you invented it, but you don't own it. Yeah. Like, this <laughs> is, this is for, for everyone. Yeah. There, there, put uh, that on a t-shirt. <laughs> I will. The next scene that I think we have to discuss is what takes place when they cotton on to like their, their first suspect, right? Yeah. And they do this whole sting where like he gets him, this guy to take him to a hotel room and tie him up and then like half of the fucking vice squad kicks down the door <laughs> with like shotguns to arrest them. And they take them back to the precinct and like put the heat lamps on them for the interrogation scene. They're, they're working over, like even though they know or like uh, Sorvino knows Pacino, mm-hmm is his guy. The other cops don't, and they're giving okay. him like the full working over just as they would any other suspect. And one of the cops, by the way, is Ed O'Neill. I don't know if you noticed that. Oh, Ed really? Wow. Al yeah. Bundy. Al Bundy. Al Bundy Played does Ted Bundy. <laughs> and again, it's another one of these scenes in this movie that just happens and isn't explained. <laughs> And oh my, like like the Powers Booth thing, but even yeah. better. So while they're working them I, over, like I want to talk to my lawyer. Room. Yeah, sweating them in this interrogation room. Out of nowhere, they just open the door to the interrogation room, and in walks a gigantic black guy wearing nothing but a jockstrap and a cowboy hat. And Pacino just looks completely confused, and then this guy just full on just slaps him out of his chair, and Pacino, the character just goes. What was that? Who what is that it? guy? <laughs> it was like you're asking the same question in your head. What yeah. was that? Why did he hit me? And then he just leaves. And then Pacino, like, like they take him away. They're, they're to like sweat the, the actual suspect. And they get him in the room of the other cops. And it's clear now that they're all on the same side. And he's like, hey, buddy, you hit me a little too hard. And he's just there reading a newspaper, but still just in a jock strap. And it's just like the weirdest. It's the only. It's the only time race is ever acknowledged in this movie. Yeah. yeah. And it's completely out of left field and totally bizarre. This is the NYPD's like real ace in the hole interrogation technique. It's just a, a black guy in a cowboy hat to smack you around. Yeah. Whenever you ask to talk to your lawyer, you're going to get backhanded by a, a huge guy in a jockstrap yeah. cowboy hat. And I also love that um, Pacino is. You know, when he walks into that room where the guy's reading the paper, like, he's he's recovered enough to say to him, like, hey, you know, you went, like, too hard on me. And then just grabs his hat and tries to it out the window. <laughs> Which, to me, implies, like, a certain uh, friendly familiarity. Yeah. <laughs> it is a, a standout set piece in the film. But, yeah, like, I have never, I have never truly understood that scene, and I don't feel like I need to. <laughs> it needs to be explained, though. I think it defies explanation it's yeah. just in the movie, and it's just sort of like one of these beautiful moments in cinema that you just doesn't need to be explained. It stands on its own, yeah. And later, when they actually find what turns out to be the suspect, and Pacino's going through his his letter to his dad, and you you kind of find out more about his character, and then there's a scene of the suspect himself on a park bench talking to his dad, who I think we learn later turns out to be dead. But, yes. But yeah, but he's still carrying on this conversation with him and, and writing letters to the to his deceased father. And the thing that I find really interesting that I believe is intentional mm-hmm. is that the father has the same dubbed voice as the killer in this in the the murder scenes that same you made me do this that's the voice of the father really i didn't notice that. oh 
That's that's how it came across to me, and I really love Friedkin's creepy use of dubbing because he does the same thing for like the voice of Regan in Exorcist when she's possessed, where it's like, "What a nice day for an exorcism," like things like mm-hmm. that. It, it isn't the actor's voice coming from the room; it's this voice just coming in directly to you, and it's just it has this this just this side of unnatural notion to it where it's a normal human voice but the context is all wrong this is an interesting production note um when the movie was actually being shot um gay activists tried to disrupt filming by making noise during takes so it's probable that um adr was used so extensively in the film because a lot of the the live audio tracks were ruined but at the same time, like this, the detached quality that you get with ADR, like actually works very well. I, I could be making something out of nothing here, but I believe that that use is deliberate. I don't know. I kind of feel like maybe they would have ADR'd the killer's voice anyway, because it is very detached and weird. Yeah. It's, and similarly, if you want a more recent example of this, is Bane from the uh, Batman movies. Mm-hmm. And be, because, you know, his mouth is covered, you can't see him talking, so they really gotta, like, overdrive his voice so that it makes an impression otherwise like you just hear this muffled guy and you don't know what he's saying i've talked to people who didn't get it where they're just like oh they dubbed bane all wrong like his his voice sounds all weird and it's like no it's supposed to be coming directly at you Mm -hmm. it's not like a voice in a room it's much more powerful and saying like this voice is over everything like there's all like this background noise but no the voice is the thing that's most important and i think that you know freaking's doing this with the killer and he's doing it with you know pazuzu or or satan or whoever Mm -hmm. uh in the exorcist and that that's definitely a trick that i want to steal yeah (laughs) (laughs) you bring up sort of like the like the the final act or just like the the last third of this movie when pacino like they they realize the first suspect they have is totally innocent and they get on to this the second suspect who is a Columbia student who uh, took a class with the, the, the murdered professor. Mm-hmm. So there is a connection be- between them. Now, in its portrayal of this character, and particularly the weird like daddy issues going on, I think is probably the part of the movie where I think the allegations of homophobia stick the most. Okay. Mm-hmm. In that I think the kind of like pop psychology of, of, of the movie is setting up gayness as being kind of like an a, like an a, you know a psychological outgrowth of father issues mm-hmm. and like the scene where the killer or, or this character he meets on the park bench with his dad who we later find out is dead and the dad is telling him you know what you have to do you have to do this for me like he's killing these men to sort of like atone for his father's disapproval of him being gay or something like that or this this tyrannical kind of overbearing father figure that he's trying to reenact in some way psychologically or sexually yeah. I found to be let's say problematic yeah in its portrayal of uh, homosexuality yeah because at the time um, this was certainly way before there was any kind of consideration of a genetic component for homosexuality this was before any notion of uh, being gay is something that you simply are, at least to mainstream culture. I'm sure that there were many gay people at the time where I was like, hey, I've been this way since I was a kid. But this is this is before all this all the born this way kind of thing being in the mainstream. And um, people, I think, tended to look towards a psychological or, or Freudian these psychoanalytic. Like, yeah, these Freudian, yeah, the, the, this kind of like Freudian uh, version of like uh, that 
homosexuality as some kind of like stunted or misplaced sexuality because of you were warped in childhood by an overbearing mother or father yeah. or something oh, like that. I came to a not a not a completely different conclusion in contrast to that, but just like a, a different one in terms of that, the son's difficulty with coming to terms with who he is in disapproval of his father. And so that's how the you made me do this thing comes about in that it's him enacting violence against his fellow gay men who he's attracted to. And he's saying, you made me do this because it's like, how dare you bring this awful thing out of me? Which mm -hmm. is the same thing for, for Pacino and, you know, for, for his character, because he delves into this world and then finds that he likes it but it's in contrast to you know his own identity so in that same way he becomes this aggressor because he's killing the, these gay men because it's like you're bringing something out of me that i find deeply uncomfortable that's kind of what i got out of it is that he's killing the object of his desire well and again this goes back to what we we're talking about with this whole like very deliberate doubling effect throughout the entire movie where like everyone kind of looks the same and you're not really clear who is a killer who's a victim who's the hero of the movie. And I think particularly like in, I guess, the climax of the movie where Pacino follows this guy into into the park and cruises him very aggressively. And like at this point, he's like a pro and he knows exactly what to do. Like Hips he knows all the, the code, yeah. he knows the look, he knows, you know, everything about it. Um, and I think hips or lips. Yeah, that's what he <laughs> yeah. says. But then the scene like, like, where, like they take their pants off and then like, the killer has his knife in the boot, but so does Pacino, and like Servino even shows him the murder weapon and gives him the exact same like steak knife this guy is using. And it's like in that scene at the end, I'd have to rewatch it. Like it's really not clear. Like out of nowhere, Pacino just stabs this guy, but it's not clear who was making the first move, if it was self-defense or if in fact the Pacino character has finally committed his own, like, you know, gay panic hate crime. <laughs> yeah, yeah, in the same way that it continues on, like, it isn't, the killer isn't a singular person, the killer is the attitude. And Pacino then adopts it, and that's the reason that these killings are going to continue to go on. That's what I really like about this, following the structure of a horror film, is, you know, not just the first scene where the freewheeling person is, is killed, but then they think they solved it, but they haven't. There's the same unresolved psychological issue that is going to, to cause this to happen again, even though you killed the killer, but you didn't kill his motives. Yeah, and then this leads into the very unnerving final shots. Yeah. Where Pacino stares directly into the camera, you know, mirroring those direct aggressive gazes yeah. that were directed towards him. And then what do we see? We see like a tugboat on the Hudson or whatever, yeah. which takes you back to the beginning of the film. The very first shot of the movie is the tugboat. So he completes this kind of like uh, Edgar Allan Poe, <laughs> sort of like sightless circle of uh, violence in this kind of, it's a very gothic movie. Yeah. And uh, the thing that happens before that is that uh, there's another murder of Al Pacino's neighbor, who's the playwright character we haven't really talked about, but he's the one character who's like he's a gay man but he's not part of like the whole leather scene that Pacino is and, and because of that he's probably like more humanized and more has more of a personality than a lot of the kind of like anonymous leather men in leather that you see in these sex clubs and is sort of like the sweeter and more vulnerable than the rest of the the men portrayed in this movie and is you know ends up murdered at the very end of this movie being very strongly implied that perhaps Al Pacino was the one who killed him. 
Yeah, because uh, Pacino had already um, gone to the apartment and got, almost got in an altercation, and did get in an altercation with his roommate. His right. Ro- roommate, right, right, yeah, <laughs> the 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 dancer yeah. uh, who pulls a knife on him, played by James Remar. James Remar, yeah. <laughs> and and that's again like if you want to separate it into like conscious and subconscious, like you say he's kind of going you know, underground into this, you know, CD world of this explicit gay culture, but then to have the sort of, you know, nice guy in the next apartment, the one who's, you know, trying to be creative and living his life, like to then have that bubble up into like the daylight, mm-hmm. because it's the only murder that's during the day. This CD undercurrent then is, is again, like I said, bubbling up into normal everyday life, like, you know, you, like casual gays, like likable gays are getting killed now. <laughs> the acceptable ones. Yeah. Also, though, uh, like the scene right before the very end where like Al Pacino shaving and like looks in the mirror and like he meets your gaze in a very kind of weird way. Right before that, Karen Allen like discovers his like leather costume and puts it on. Yeah. And puts on the cap and the mirrored sunglasses and the leather jacket. And it's like, what, I was like, what's going on with that? Like, so Karen Allen is now taking on this identity of like, I don't know, yeah, like leather daddy or something. She'll kill him in the sequel, Cruising 2, and she'll become the next serial killer. <laughs> right. And she's going to turn gay, and she'll be attracted to men. Wait. Game <laughs> <laughs> a killer. She be, she's killing gay men because her lover was turned gay by the NYPD in <laughs> leather dungeon clubs and she's taking out her revenge I'd watch on the men of New York. No, it'll be, um, she'll become a lesbian and the, sequ- and the sequel will be cruising to Daughters of Belitis. Right. <laughs> yeah, I say, let's make it. Right. Pure yeah. exploitation. No, I like the notion of her killing gay men for stealing her boyfriend. <laughs> One of the uh, minor points that we hadn't talked about is the music in this. Great soundtrack. Yeah. yeah, the droning atmospheric. Yeah, because there was a lot of like really gritty punk of the time. And then for kind of the horror scenes, there is this very creepy atmospheric synth drone, which put Tim in mind of uh, Angelo Badalamente. Yeah, yeah, from, you know, Twin Peaks or, I mean, I, I knew it from Mulholland Drive, but yeah, I mean, all yeah. the same. It has, you know, kind of a great sense of atmosphere to it. But I think my favorite, um, my favorite soundtracks are always, like, creepy electronica, to be honest. <laughs> There's a lot to be had. Yes. <laughs> um, one other um, point, no pun intended, is um, early on we are talking about how there's, you know, brief juxtaposition of you know, penetrative gay sex while, like, the knife is entering the victim's body. And it just brought to mind um, Charles Bronson's uh, insight from 10 to Midnight. His knife is his penis. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess, you know, now we need to reevaluate 10 to Midnight. He was on to something. It's true, he was. Yeah. Again, also starring Gene Davis. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> a lot of the same names kind of keep coming up. <laughs> I have a question. There's a point where... Um, I, have, I have a question. Have you ever gotten a blowjob from another man? <laughs> <laughs> well, I disqualify myself, but I'm... Uh, let me ask you two. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's a point in the... Um, during the interrogation when they're trying to intimidate the first suspect, and one of the cops says to him, we're going to dip your balls in water and see if they float. 
I oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I turned to Tim and I said, "Okay, I don't have balls. I'm gonna need this one explained to me." I have no idea. Is it like witchcraft? Like yeah. if the witch floats, then they... you know what that is? I think that was I think that was a direct. Uh, I think that was just like cop jargon, Blarney nonsense, where you just like fuck with someone and get in their head. And I think it was a direct line from "We're gonna put your balls in water and see if it floats." To Gene Hackman in Friedkin's French Connection, did you ever p- pick your feet in Poughkeepsie? Oh, the cop I don't yeah. pick your feet in Poughkeepsie. It's just like, it's just cops sort of like fast talking, fucking jive to just like fuck with people and just talk nonsense in a way that will just sort of like, you know, uh, throw you off. Yeah. Oh, okay. That actually kind of makes sense because. Uh... I remember, and I really love the French Connection as well. Mm-hmm. Like it, it really ruined police procedurals for me because everything else just seems so like fake and artificial and contrived. Yeah. Well, right. most um, certainly most uh, TV uh, procedurals but, uh, are very rote. Yeah. Uh, to answer your question, though, if you put your balls in water, they will not float <laughs> unless your pole is being smoked by another man. <laughs> <laughs> It's the one-two punch. Like, they don't work on their own. They have to be in unison. Yeah, this is like the NYPD's way to, like, test if you were gay or not. Yeah, or, like, to see if you've, like, just blown your load, maybe. I don't know. Like, do your balls float if you've just, like, nutted? Well, I know I feel much lighter. <laughs> Tim, get in the bathroom and tell me what you find out. <laughs> Will, you do this, too. We're going to need there, more than... We're going to need a Is there a Mythbusters podcast that we could uh, submit this to? <laughs> It's all Mythbusters, and it's all, like, testicular myths. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> myth bust a nut. I hey, don't know. Yeah, I am myth busting over here. <laughs> so, um, having picked uh, Cruising Apart, like, how do you guys think it ultimately uh, comes off as, uh, you know, a great freaking joint or something homophobic that should be reviled or something in between uh, yeah i would say something in between like i, I don't think it's as bad as as bad a movie as like uh the initial critical reception would have it be i think it's a it's definitely worth seeing mm-hmm. i think it's like an interesting because i think it embodies like a, a lot of these things like in that it, it like it, an interesting artifact of like peak like new york city kind of like sleaze exploitation cinema but also like interesting because of the way of I, I think as you said at the beginning the frankness with which it portrayed this subculture that hasn't really been attempted before or since I really like uh, Friedkin's approach to horror because uh, I mean mm-hmm. I find this and The Exorcist you know just both being really good horror movies and I think that it's certainly a a style to emulate and I think that Cruising does follow this horror blueprint but the problem is I think that a lot of horror movies now um, are lacking in that sort of grounded nature that you know, even you know, The Exorcist or, or Cruising has in that they exist in a dynamic and nuanced real world. Because even in The Exorcist, like, there are links of like, archaeologists looking for artifacts. And like, this has nothing to do with like, the scary bit, but it's all setting up like, this realistic world and this sort of atmosphere that I think is missing from a lot of modern horror. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what I like about Cruising. Yeah, and no, I, I like what you said about, you know, Friedkin and horror, because like I said, like I, I, I'm seeing it again, I was very struck by the kind of gothic uh, overtones of this movie, both in its use of kind of like doppelgangers, but also like the general feel of the movie. 
I mean, it's like it is ridiculous. It's a ridiculous movie on on, on a lot of levels, yeah. for sure. <laughs> but it, it's it's an interesting one, and I think uh, worth seeing. By the way, freaking horror movies. You guys ever seen Bug? I want to. I have never. That movie looks off the that chain. That's one of the fucking scariest movies I've ever seen. <laughs> wow. Without a, do you guys know it? Anything about it? I know nothing about yeah, it. Yeah, it's the one. Um, it's Ashley. You guys Judd gotta and... have me on for for to talk Bug. It's based on a Tracy Letts play, and it stars Ashley Judd and Michael Shannon in okay. his first like big role. <laughs> and it's just like it, it because it's based on a play. It's like very self-contained. There's like almost one set, and it's just basically two people in a motel room losing their fucking minds, <laughs> and it is so fucking scary and disturbing. So definitely, definitely worth seeing if you haven't seen Bug. One of the most disturbing movies I've ever seen. Oh, that's great. Nice. Halloween yeah. episode. Yeah, for me, it's some cruising. Like, I love it. I recommend it. Again, Will, you and I talked about this on the Scorsese episode. I love movies about masculine spheres, which are completely close to me, a woman. This allows me a peek, not just at a masculine world, but one, you know, not to say that people don't still cruise and go to leather bars, but of a disappeared uh, New York. That's the other interesting thing is like a, this portrayal of a, a lost New York and like a lost like gay culture now because like cruising, it's just all on like it's all online. Mm -hmm. It's it's like it's been removed from this kind of like this public kind of display of, of transgression and, and sort of codes and uniforms and I assume has largely been displaced by the internet. And now it's yeah. just like it's just all online. Yeah, there's much. just a yank, yellow hanky subreddit now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> R slash Eurolagnia. Yeah. <laughs> also, the actual New York City locations in this movie were actually also very good and accurate. Speaking as a New Yorker. <laughs> yep. Mm. Yeah, we're uh, we're entirely West Coast, so. Yeah, I've been in New York like twice. <laughs> <laughs> so, is there anything else we want to say about cruising? Uh, don't turn gay and start murdering gay people. <laughs> it might be a little much for you. Uh, I would just like to say, uh, poppers can be enjoyed by non-gay people. You don't <laughs> enjoy them responsibly. Do them just so you're, you know, get fully dilated and uh, can be fisted. But you know, they can be enjoyed responsibly in uh, a good, wholesome context. <laughs> That, All right. Yeah, well, that and everyone loves ass play. Eating ass is for everyone. I love cruising. Go watch it. Next episode will be Larry Kramer's faggots. <laughs> <laughs> I've met Larry Kramer actually. Mm -hmm.